Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Policy Forum podcast. This is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Nikki Lovegrove. Policy Forum pod is produced at Crawford School of Public Policy. This is the region's leading graduate policy school. It's also the only place in Australia where you can complete a public policy master's in one year. That's the Executive Master of Public Policy. You can find out more about that at crawford.anu.edu.au. And the convener for that course is, in fact, my co-host for today. You've heard her before a few weeks ago. She was on the podcast where we're looking at community engagement. And on that episode, she delivered what has to be my favorite ever line on a Policy Forum episode when she described podcasting as the researcher equivalent of a face-melting guitar riff. Sarah Bias, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Nikki. We aim to please. But you know, this episode, we're less interested in faces and more about small hands as we turn our attention to that small P word. That's right. It's populism. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. I actually got a question on that. You were, um, before you were a rock star researcher, you were in <laughs> fact a rock star radio presenter at, I think it was 106 FM or rock all the time. How did, how did that go? That's the one. Well, we were all rocking all the time. <laughs> and I think that the uh, listener base for that station would be really into our discussion on populism. Well, it might affect how you answer this next question. If Donald Trump was a classic rock song, what song do you think he would be? Sadly, not common people. <laughs> okay, well, that, that maybe makes some sense. We'll find out a bit more. So we are talking <laughs> about populism today. We're going to look at what it is, why it's such a big deal, and how it's affecting politics and policy. We've got a great lineup of guests to discuss this issue. Joining us today is Duncan McDonald. Duncan is Professor of Politics in the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. His main research interests are political parties, populism, and Euroscepticism. And I saw, Duncan, that you have very recently ticked a personal bucket list box with your opinion piece in the Irish Times. Congratulations. Thank you. My mom's very happy about that. <laughs> so she should be. We've also got Dr. Jill Shepherd, who is a lecturer at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Jill has particular interest in Australian government and governance, internet politics, and political participation. So a perfect person for today's episode. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Nikki. And finally, certainly last but not least, we're joined by Paul Kenny. Paul is head of the Department of Political and Social Change at the ANU College of the Asia and the Pacific. He published a book last year called Populism and Patronage, Why Populists Win Elections in India, Asia, and Beyond. And he has another book forthcoming, Looking at Populism in Southeast Asia. And I also have to say that on today's podcast, we really have the luck of the Irish. So thanks, guys, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Before we start, a reminder that we're really keen to hear your thoughts from our listeners on this or any of our other podcasts. You can reach us on Facebook 
where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we are APPS Policy Forum, or just drop us a line by email at podcast at policyforum.net. But for now, let's jump right into the, the discussion, and I'm going to ask an obvious but hopefully uh, necessary question. What is populism anyway? What do we mean by it when we use the term? And perhaps I'll start with you, Duncan. Thanks. Um, well, what we mean by it when we use the term, I suppose, depends on who we are. If we're journalists, we use it really in all sorts of myriad ways, a little bit like confetti at a wedding. And um, we use it about the most disparate political actors. And in the end, the term ends up not meaning very much. Uh, if we're academics, we hopefully use it in a little bit more of a fine-tuned way. Um, there are differences within academia and how it's viewed, but basically most academic definitions agree on a few central points. In other words, populism proposes uh, a worldview, an idea of society as being divided into two main groups. On the one hand, you have the people who are conceived of as being good, they're homogenous, they're a community, they're, they have common sense, they have traditional values and so on and so forth. And on the other side, the people are being oppressed by a whole series of elites. They could be political elites, they could be media elites, academics, financial, big banks, um, judges. And populism contends that the elites have basically taken away democracy from the people. They've usurped sovereignty from the people. And the job of the populist is to give that sovereignty back to the people, to make them masters in their own homes again. So that, that's basically the, the essential distinction that, that the populism makes between people and elites. So we've been hearing a lot about populism in the last few years, um, especially since the 2016 US election. And it's been a hot button issue, not only in the US, but in many democracies all around the world. What's been the cause of this recent attention to populism? What's, what's really um, promoted this latest wave? Um, maybe I'll hear from you, Paul. Yeah, so as you as you mentioned, and as Duncan mentioned, not everyone agrees exactly on what <laughs> populism is. And I sort of take a slightly different take, which is that populism is a very... Um, uh, it's it's a people centric form of politics, so it is based on the people. That's sort of uh, in the in the meaning of the word itself. But uh, it takes a form where um, you have a charismatic leader that mobilizes the people, uh, and I think you see that very clearly in the American case uh, with Donald Trump. Careful with how you define charisma, there, Paul. Um, so the way I'm understanding charisma is is in that sort of classic Weberian sense, right? So it's a it's a really personalistic form of authority uh, that doesn't depend on tradition or institutions or party based rules. And if you look at how Trump has come to power within the Republican Party and what he's done to the Republican Party since he's become president, you see this real personalization of authority and very little respect for institutions and the rules. And so this is very concerning and. Um, along with uh, uh, Kirk Hawkins and other specialists on, on populism, we had written an opinion piece um, a few months uh, before the U.S. election uh, contemplating what might happen if Trump got elected. And many of the things that we, we had anticipated have come to pass. So it's not unique to Donald Trump. It's unique to populists and how they behave. So uh, it, this sort of very personalistic form of authority, they claim to represent the people. Uh, but they really use the people as a, a cudgel uh, to bash other elites and to to establish personalistic forms of authority. So just following on from that and thinking about the traditional form of very active and participatory democracy, which is about the people, Jill, is populism the antithesis to democracy? Or if we go more towards Duncan's definition, is it actually vital to it? Well, I don't. I'm not a populist scholar. And dare I say, in a room in which I'm outnumbered by 
populism scholars that I I sometimes wonder if this is coming up with a definition to um, to a solution that we could uh, sorry to a, a definition to explain or solve a problem that we already have uh, solutions for something like you know and, and I think Paul's spot on that someone like Trump uh, presents a real threat to a rules based order. We see in Australia, for instance, you know, we're an incredibly stable democracy, but that our institutions kind of probably need updating, you know, in a lot of ways. And maybe a populist response to, uh, for instance, lack of responsiveness on the part of Australian politicians isn't something that we should be worried about. Maybe it's a signal to our leaders and to our institutions that they have become unresponsive and they need to do something about that. I mean, I also take issue, I guess, with the idea that uh, charismatic leaders can uh, and and intentionally use uh, people as a, uh, as you know a, a sort of means to their political end. I don't think that uh, necessarily vests much agency in voters. I tend to come from the perspective that we trust voters, we trust people, we we um, believe that people act rationally and they act mostly in their best interests. Uh, and even as I'm saying this, I think that doesn't explain the Third Reich at all. So I'm it, look, it's tough. It's tough, and I come from a very different perspective. So I love listening to Paul and Duncan speak, and and I love reading their work on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a different approach that I come from. So you mentioned there the need to update, right? And it suggests that populism is kind of spurring some form of change. But it seems to me that populism has been around for a long time. And I do kind of wonder what all the fuss is about. I think back to grade 10 when my history class was expertly taught by our football coach, Coach Smith. <laughs> and he did tell us all about the Omaha party of 1892 and their platform, which was the first populist official party in the United States. They had some good ideas. They wanted an eight-hour workday, and they wanted direct election of senators and a secret ballot. It's been around a while. Duncan, what's what's all the fuss about? Why is populism really this new thing that we need to be worried about all of a sudden? Well, you're right. I mean, populism has been there as long as we've been debating about democracy. I mean, a little bit to go back to, to what Nikki says, um, you know, about is populism you know, how is it related to democracy and so on? Uh, I would say that populists certainly present themselves being hyper-democratic. Mm. They, they want to return power to the people. I mean, that's essentially Lincoln's Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address, isn't it? Um, however, th what populists do is they really exploit that gap between what Lincoln and democracy promise and what liberal democracy actually delivers, which, of course, isn't government of the people by the people, but limited majority rule in the name mm. of the people. They're very different things. And populism precisely exploits that gap. Um, so I would say populism is not anti-democracy, but it is anti-liberal democracy. And that, to go back to your point, is why we're actually concerned about it at the moment. Because in a series of countries, for example, in Europe, you're seeing populists undermining the pillars of liberal democracy. Think of Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, think of what's going on in Poland at the moment. Think of what's happening with the current Italian government. These are people that do not like independent judges. They don't like independent media. Mm. They don't like dissenting voices. So they're fine about elections, but they're not so fine about checks and balances. Is that democratic at all then, even if it's not liberal democratic? Well, there we get into a, into a debate about uh, whether basically when we say democracy, we mean well, liberal democracy, I absolutely guess. Absolutely, right? Uh, and we use them interchangeably. Yeah. And, and we assume that people understand there's a difference. But, <laughs> yeah. but who but does apart from political scientists, right? <laughs> We've wasted our life on this. We're glad that you've spent the time there. <laughs> Paul, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, so... Um, one of, one of my friends, I'm, I'm writing a new book on uh, populism uh, from antiquity to the present, right? Antiquity to the age of Trump. Um, 
And it's trying exactly to, to make this point that you raise, which is that populism is kind of the norm. Um, and so, you know, we can kind of tend to forget how unusual the post-war liberal democratic era was mm-hmm. in the West. Um, and one of my friends put it to me this way. He, he sort of um, he has some issues sleeping, a little bit of recurrent insomnia. And, uh, you know, he started reading about this. He didn't understand what was going on. He would wake up after about four hours. So from, you know, midnight until 3 a.m., he was awake every single night, just, you know, couldn't help it. Um, And as he read about this, he realized this is actually the norm. This is the way people are supposed to sleep. You're supposed to have a big sleep for four or five hours, wake up for two hours. You would maybe, you know, turn on the candle, you know, read, hang out, talk to your wife. You know, maybe something else would happen if you were lucky. (laughs) And, you know, then you'd go back to sleep and wake up with dawn. Right? But when he told this to people, they were like, no, no, you're supposed to sleep eight hours in a row. This is the way it happens. We've actually forgotten how we're supposed to sleep. It's become so normal to live in this abnormal way. And we now tend to think that liberal democracy with all these institutional rules, protections for minorities, uh, judiciary, over, judicial oversight, uh, separation of powers, we think this is the norm of the way democracy has worked. But it only worked for a couple of decades. And we're now so conditioned to thinking that this is how democracy uh, will work. Uh, we forget that we're now returning as parties start to decline, party membership has gone, civil mm-hmm. society organizational membership is way, way down, as Putnam has shown. Uh, and we're now returning to the form uh, prior to this liberal democratic era in the post-war period. Uh, and it's, you know, a much more turbulent, charismatic form of democracy where, you know, you get leaders appealing to different segments of the people, very little respect for these institutions anymore. Uh, and it's, it's back to this Wild West form of democracy. But 10 years ago, if you'd asked any political scientists, they would have said that democracy had consolidated, right? Liberal democracy, particularly. How could anyone want anything other than this rules-based order and separation of powers and democratic elections? There there was no other game in town, was what everyone used to say. And this is kind of not unprecedented, but it's we weren't expecting this, right? Because we're like geniuses in a box here, can we pinpoint the trigger of that? Was it the global financial crisis? Was it threats to democracy from new arising parties. Paul, your work talks about how if you undermine the usual patronage of liberal democracy, then you can end up with populist figures being elected. Was it Twitter? Was it Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> I, I don't think you can blame any of those any of those recent things. They may well have exacerbated uh, some of the things that populists exploit. But look, the fact is that I mean, if you take Western Europe, these parties have been around for decades. The Front National of France is older than I am. Yeah, I'm not that young. <laughs> You're looking pretty um, good there, Duncan. I'm, I'm wearing it well. Um, <laughs> the Vlaams the Belang in, in Belgium, likewise, has been around since the 1970s. Uh, the Austrian Freedom Party has been a right-wing populist party since the 1980s. These are parties that have been doing extremely well electorally over time. They're parties that increasingly have been getting into government well before the financial crisis. And a lot of the, a lot of the talk post-2008 uh, about that having fueled the rise of populism seems to forget that in 2002, Jean-Marie Le Pen got to the second round of the French presidential election. Pim Fortuyn's party got into the Dutch government. Uh, the Northern League was, was in government in Italy alongside a certain Silvio Berlusconi. So populism in, in Europe certainly hasn't been flourishing post-2008. The English language media likes to think that because of Brexit and Trump, but Mm. really the rest of us in Europe got there first, I think. So we've talked about some of the uh, unifying features of populism worldwide, and one of them is, um, I guess, a dissatisfaction with the status quo and with how things are going and the the elites that are governing society. Do they have a bit of a point? Do they have some legitimate grievances that that really need to be addressed here? I mean, I think so. I I absolutely think so. Um, I... I agree with Duncan and I think Paul would agree as well that there's no 
pinpoint cause for, for any of this. And because, as you say, Duncan, it's been around, you know, some of my first memories of politics are uh, Fortain and, uh, you know, Le Pen in, in France. I think there's been a failure, and maybe not even a failure, maybe it's just impossible for rules-based Western political parties to convince voters that this uh, the democ- liberal democracy is not the only game in town, and that you ha- and that they haven't reinforced and uh, re-prosecuted the case for for liberal democracy. It's been taken as given among so much of the West, and people haven't necessarily come on board with that. You know, people start looking elsewhere. Someone like uh, Ron Inglehart will say, "Well, this is a, a cultural shift where we see people become more." Uh, liberalised, more highly educated. You know, they start to look elsewhere. You you go beyond your material needs. So you start looking at post-material needs or you start looking at uh, self-expressive type um, actualization kinds of uh, modes of politics. You look elsewhere. People evolve and they uh, they they change their preferences, and I think a lot of the the structures of the West haven't really accommodated for that. And you know, in Australia, and and I'm the world's biggest proponent of compulsory voting, but I I absolutely think that our parties are lazy. They think that we're going to turn up to vote anyway because they're going to slap us with a fine if they don't. So they don't care. They don't care that we hate that they change leaders every six months, and we do. We've got so much evidence of this. We absolutely hate it. Trust in democracy is low across the West. Satisfaction with democracy is low across the West. Most of those liberal democratic leaders don't really care because they haven't thought there was another game in town. You talk there, Jill, about this kind of, you know, post-material concern where people can begin to think beyond um, the immediate. It seems, however, that there's a flip side and a very ugly side to populism wherein individuals who are the poorest in society and who are struggling to meet material needs are the ones who are getting on board this rather ugly populist train, anti-immigration, nationalism, rising anti-Semitism in Europe. Is this going to lead to more ideological policy making? Are we going to see the spread of of Trump's, you know, reduction in refugee numbers to thirty thousand a year, Pauline Hansen like ideologies within policy? Well, the, the, the one thing I, I would say there, I I think we need to be cautious about attributing support for right wing populism purely to the most disadvantaged classes. Mm. Let's not forget that the majority of white college graduates in the states voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. So, you know, this is not um, this is not in, in entirely a revolution from below, um, and there are plenty of middle class people in places like Italy and Switzerland and Austria, and Scandinavia who vote for right wing populist parties because they well, like. Well, everybody what loves a good bunga bunga party. <laughs> Most people do, yes. But the, there's a sort of you know I think we also have to be a little bit careful not to conflate populism with um, nativism or anti-immigrant mm. Uh, mm. politics, right? Because you can be anti-immigrant without being populist. I mean, look at um, you know the the sort of uh, Howard era liberal liberal party. Yeah. Um, look at um, the Conservative Party in the UK. Um, so you know those two things are, are separable for sure, but. Um, one of the things that you see with populists and the, the nature of their appeal, as, as Duncan said, is to try and appeal to the people. Of course, they're really just trying to appeal to a majority of people who turn out to vote on any particular uh, election day. They just want to get elected ultimately. Um, but one of the things that they can do if they don't possess sort of, you know, really well-organized party structures to have, you know, volunteers get out mobilizing the vote for them is to appeal on these um, 
big cultural uh, issues where you can draw very capacious boundaries around sets of the people. So being opposed to immigrants draws a boundary around everyone in the country who's not an immigrant. That's, you know, whatever, 90-odd percent of uh, potential voters, right? Uh, and immigrants mostly can't even vote anyway. Um, so it's a really uh, clever kind of strategy and why populists pursue it. It's sort of mobilization on the cheap. Uh, it's a very low-cost way in which an outsider can get elected. Uh, and we can't sort of forget this really strategic Machiavellian element to why they appeal on anti-immigrant uh, issues. It doesn't mean to say that um, the people don't have uh, reasons, rational or otherwise, for opposing immigrants. Um, and I would argue that you can actually uh, understand it in sort of very clear, rational terms, why people behave uh, this way, why voters have these preferences. But why politicians appeal to it is another matter, and why populists in particular have an affinity for something like anti-immigrant politics or anti-crime politics. Um, I think that that's quite strategic on their part. And in a lot of Western democracies, uh, anti-immigration attitudes cut across both parties. So they're just as prevalent on the left as the right. So if you're trying to hive off voters from from the other side, I mean, that's the your first step, right? I think, Jill, it raises uh, Paul's point about these capacious boundaries, right, this kind of vagueness, and that raises a question about within a populist political environment, is it actually harder to bring evidence and expert knowledge to bear, particularly on, on issues that get within the populist agenda? Well, Duncan's always in the media. They can't be that hard. <laughs> Thank, th no thank one listens to us, really. <laughs> nah, not really. We just get abuse below the common. <laughs> <one. laughs> I, I think certainly, I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the idea of, of expert, it was experts, you know, I, I always think back to what Michael Gove said during the Brexit referendum of, you know, we've had enough of all these of all these experts. And, you know, I think you can also see to some extent the rise of populism as being a reaction to the technocratization of government to the fact that, for example, at least in Europe, we have hived off so, mo so many policy areas essentially to technocrats and bureaucrats at European level. Um, and parties, mainstream parties in many European countries present themselves to voters saying, look, our hands are tied. We can't do that much for the welfare state. We can't do very much about your pensions. We can't do very much about the economy because we have obligations to the markets and to the European Union and so on. That makes, of course, the appeal of populists much bigger. So you think about Italy. Italy between 2011 and 2013 had a technocratic government in which the prime minister and none of the ministers were members of parliament. Parties basically abdicated on their two core businesses, which are providing government and opposition. And people reacted to that and gave a party called the Five Star, moving 26% of the vote in their first election. So populism is, is also feeding off the, um, the, the fact that mainstream parties promise to be able to do less and less. I wanted to touch a bit more on what's going on in Europe at the moment. And you talked about... Um, the anti-European Union sentiment. Is the European Union to blame for this rise of populism that we're seeing in different countries around the region? Mm. Has, has it been because it's been a, well, this perception wonder, of a technocratic government that's been against the sovereignty yeah, of those countries? Yeah, no, look, I, I think certainly that fact that, um, that a lot of policy areas essentially um, without much discussion within um, domestic political competition, lots of policy areas have been... Uh, pushed up to European level to, to be decided. Um, having said that, when we say the European Union, who are we talking about? The European Union is, is not some you know, uh, master e evil genius sitting in Brussels or Strasbourg um, manipulating all this. The European Union is a collection of uh, national level elites who get together and make decisions. So, I mean, really, for me, one of the mysteries about the European Union is why 
national political elites have decided over the course of decades to actually take so many areas out of their own hands um, to to abdicate their their decision making powers and things, or at least to pool that sovereignty at European level. Um, having said that, when you look in surveys and so on, it's not your scepticism that is really driving the the, the right wing populist vote or the, even the left wing populist vote so much in Europe. It's issues like immigration for the right wing populist, certainly. And Paul, similarly, you've been doing a lot of work in Southeast Asia and also in India. Can you give us a bit of a guide as to what's happening in populism in the It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Those regions. So you kind of see uh, it's sort of all of these kind of pressures we're talking about, about, you know, weak, weak parties and, uh, you know, distrust of elites, distrust of government and institutions. Um that's sort of just really exacerbated. It's it's uh, it's sort of in extreme form when you look at uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia. Um, so you see in places like uh, places like India, Indonesia, the Philippines is another great example where there are essentially no political parties, um, and you just have uh, sort of almost serial uh, kind of charismatic populist uh, politics, sort of one after another. Um, and you know, even though Philippines, for example, you know had had experienced. Um, a very successful period uh, of sort of moderate, almost technocratic uh, kind of uh, government, Duterte was able to come to power, not because of dissatisfaction with the economy or pocketbook issues or, uh, you know, governance issues in particular, but because of crime. Um, and so this is a key predictor of uh, support for Duterte, uh, and it's continuing to drive uh, support for Duterte's uh, politics. Um, and sort of in, in India, you can see as well, it's issues of uh, ethnicity and anti-Muslim sentiment and uh, in large part Modi's charisma uh, that has driven the rise of the BJP. So some quarter of voters uh, in the most recent uh, um, Indian national election when, when the BJP came to power, they chose the BJP because of Modi. 25%, that's a huge leadership uh, effect. Uh, and so even though the BJP is reasonably well organized, uh, you can see how, you know, the importance of, you know, individual uh, sort of charismatic leaders is kind of driving the support for these parties. But it's because they're able to, again, draw around these big borders of who counts as the people. Uh, and in India, of course, it's a massively majority Hindu uh, country. So if you can appeal and uh, if you can appeal on that basis and draw that as your main cleavage, uh, well, then you're going to get big, big shares of the vote. So I think it's an opportunity as well to turn to Jill and to ask you a bit about what is happening in the Australian context. Lots and, and not a lot. Um, this is, you know, I've, I've sledged Duncan for doing a lot of media, but I've um, done my fair share lately too. And a lot oh, of it's yeah. been, all right, <laughs> a lot of it's been trying to convince um, media outlets in other countries that there's nothing really wrong, right? We're not, these aren't coups. If I hear anyone describe, you know, a leadership spill in Australia one more time as a coup, you know, I think I'm sort of going to jump out the window. Um, our institutions are incredibly stable. The fact that the parties can replace their leaders based on factional conflict um, isn't new. The fact that they got away with it under Kevin Rudd 
um, uh, you know, I think, which was relatively popular at the time. You know, we, we resented it in the short term, but I think most of us would look back and think, gee, we dodged a bullet with Rudd. Um, they realised they can get away with it. Because as I say, we've got compulsory voting. We're still going to keep turning out to vote. Where well, I want my sausage, you know. Well, you know, I've, I've, you know, I cook the sausages for my daughter's school. We need the money, right? It's our biggest sort of fundraiser for the year. Uh, we're still going to keep turning out to vote. We're going to vote for one of the major parties because we have an electoral system that consolidates power in the two major parties. This is all going to keep happening. Our our underlying uh, political system is incredibly stable. The fact that this is happening, this sort of personnel change is happening at the surface level is annoying, uh, probably more than annoying. I'm probably giving them too much credit, but it doesn't really change anything. What's going to happen below the surface, though, is that it's going to keep eroding our trust. It's going to keep eroding our satisfaction. I don't think Australian voters are likely to start looking elsewhere from liberal democracy, uh, but we're pretty annoyed. You know, we are deeply dissatisfied with what's happening it's just that our major parties show absolutely no inclination to respond to that. And, you know, to the extent that anyone listens to experts, which, you know, the three of us know they absolutely don't, um, we're just going to keep chipping away at the parties, just saying you need to listen, you need to, you know, get your head out of the sand. Well, so there could be a slightly different take on it, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not a, an Australian politics expert by any means. But if you look at uh, the US, for example, I'm, you know, you're kind of saying that the parties are dropping the ball, even even Labour with its very strong base in the unions is dropping the ball. Organisationally, it doesn't work as hard as it used to. They're getting lazy. And so rather than seeing a populist challenge come from outside, it could come from inside. From inside so, the parties. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the next leader of the Liberal Party or Labour uh, Party would base his support not on, on sort of factions within the parties, but on direct appeals to the people. And they can become so popular that, you know, the party elite has no choice but to put them in power. And when they do, they can start to dismantle some of the ability of the party to replace them. Kevin Rubb was as close as we've gotten. And then you see on the Liberal Party side, Julie Bishop went to her colleagues explicitly saying, you want your seat back. I'm the popular one. And she lost in the first round of voting. It will happen in the Labour Party first um, because of their internal rules. It it could happen. I, I don't. Yeah, it could happen. Is my wishy washy answer? What do you think, Duncan? Could it happen? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. I think I think it probably could. I mean, when I look at the history of right wing populism in Australia over the last few decades, um, I always look back to the rise of Hanson in the, in the late nineteen nineties in the state that I live in, uh, Queensland. And you know, really, what I think happened happened there was that the Liberal Party they they, they shot the mess the populist messenger, but they stole a lot of her message in terms of in terms of policies and in terms of rhetoric, whether that's about immigration or whether that was about the treatment of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders and how Australia should respond to that. Um, so I also I also think another important thing to bear in mind about. The, the failure to some extent of right-wing populism in this country is that while in Western Europe you had very capable party leaders like Marine Le Pen, like Matteo Salvini in Italy, uh, like Jimmy Aukerson in, in Sweden, who whatever you think of their policies are very good people at running a party organization, in Australia you had Pauline Hanson, who's a very good campaigner but an appalling party mm. leader in terms of keeping that organization together. She imploded, or her party imploded, um, in the late 1990s. And the same is happening again now since, yep. since she got in, in 2016. So in a way, I think Australia can probably thank its blessings that when the radical right populist cards were being dealt, they got Pauline Hanson rather than Le Pen. And Clive Palmer. I mean, well, it's been a... Well, yeah, Clive Palmer perhaps makes Hanson a professional. Park, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a pretty unedifying parade of fools, that's, really. That's right. So just wait until you get one that actually has some, has some talent at running a party and, uh, and giving that durability. 
Now, speaking about an unedifying, an unedifying parade of fools, we've gone around the world, really, today. We've talked about the U.S., we've talked about Europe, we've talked about Southeast Asia and India, we've come back to Australia. But there's this other new quasi-geographic realm of the internet. And I'm really interested to hear from you, how is the online political domain shaping what we see in the form of a kind of contemporary global trend towards populism? So I'm not I'm not yet convinced. So when you look at, at some of the most recent uh, examples, whether um, Modi in India, who's famous for his kind of, you know, embrace of technology and media strategy, it's traditional media, TV that predicts it. Internet has no uh, effect on, on support for Modi voting for the BJP. Um, even the same in the Philippines. Uh, it's traditional media, mass media that predicts support for Duterte, not uh, social media. And even though the Philippines is one of the, the most uh, kind of densely penetrated uh, social media environments, in particular by Facebook, uh, even still, uh, it's not a discernible effect. So it attracts an awful lot of attention. Um, but we don't quite know its effect. So political scientists are still sort of on the fence. We don't quite know. At the margins, it might make a, a small effect. Um, where it's really well tailored. And, you know, it seems like it might have had an, a small impact in the US. But um, yeah, it's just very, very hard to tell at this point. The key question that we ask is, is whether the internet is engaging, is mobilizing people who wouldn't otherwise care or vote, or whether it's reinforcing people who already care. And for the most part, we think it's probably reinforcing. Now, that maybe has an organizational effect, right? If you can um, solidify a group of people who may have cared and gone and voted, but made them, you know, if you, if it can make them rabid, then maybe that's having an effect. But as Paul says, it's at the margins. Well, speaking of which, it was a nice um, study done on, on Germany. I don't know if people have seen this one, but it shows that um, Facebook usage uh, – geographically sort of uh, disaggregated within Germany uh, is associated with violence against uh, immigrants. Uh, and so they have a very nice experimental design to show when, you know, when Facebook sort of randomly cuts out, uh, it, levels of violence go down and so on. So there's a really kind of nice strong causal association between Facebook usage and anti-immigrant violence, which suggests that at the margins, yes, it could really be making people rabid. Um, they might have already had these attitudes and be tapping into this um, sort of uh, kind of set of attitudes, but it's priming it in a sort of a significant way. And which it's the organization, right? It gets these people in touch with each other. Duncan, you're on Twitter, which obviously makes you an expert on social media. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, well, I, I'd agree with Paul that it's, it's probably a little bit too early to, to really tell. What I would say is that, uh, and this goes back to what Jill just said, um, I think the internet for right-wing populist parties in Europe, at least, has actually been a very effective place basically to bring people from online to offline. So get people to meet, to discuss things, and then move that to offline. So, for example, uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy uh, with Beppe Grillo was extremely effective with this. That started as essentially a series of meetups, which you organize on the internet, and then you go and meet in a pub or a bar or whatever. And they established a grassroots political organization across the country thanks to that. But at the end of the day, it was people getting out of their homes and sitting down down in places and meeting and organizing uh, and so on. And that's the other thing I would say about these parties. Yes, um, the internet may may have importance, but what I think really has importance to these parties is the fact that in many areas, for example, Europe, they're the only ones that are actually present at grassroots level. They're the only parties that you see on a Saturday morning at the markets handing out flyers, whether you're in Switzerland or whether you're in Northern Italy or whether you're in Sweden. And that's something the mainstream parties do less and less. It's so. the Greens here. 
The Greens here have been absolutely dominant in online, uh, in person. They're doing things that the major parties wouldn't get off their backsides to do. Mm. I mean, what's interesting about that is those are classic tenets as a sociologist of social cohesion. So people Mm. participating in society, feeling a sense of belonging, whether or not it's to a group that you might want to be a member of is a different question. But you can hear some potential, if we're really looking for the silver lining, some potential positives about this form of populism. Can populist sentiment be harnessed to get more people engaged in democratic processes? Could this be the start of something potentially positive? Well, I think at the moment people are cohering, but they're cohering around nativist sentiment or anti-immigrant sentiment. If we could get them to... It's an awful thing. This is why people don't listen to experts because we say things like if we could get people just to cohere around liberal democratic norms, we'd all be a lot happier. But that's the that that's the pipe dream, right? Mm. I, I think certainly given the given the actions we see certainly in the in the populist right, which is the dominant form of populism, at least in Western democracies, um I, I don't think there's much really positive for for democracy in there. Unfortunately we've only got time for about one more question. So I'll throw it open to everyone. What do you see as the future of populism? Is it going to hang around for a while? And I guess a related question, is it going to, is there a possibility that it can turn dark and start tending towards its um, its evil cousins of authoritarianism and even fascism? Is that is that on the cards at all? <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's a look, reluctant to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess we all hope not, right? Um, I mean, the the question, I, I suppose, is can parties react to that by, by going back to their roots and, and organizing people and, and uh, building off civil society? Or has there just been this fundamental change in how society is organized now? You know, the internet has an effect, but the way we work is also very, very different from how it used to be. People don't work in big factories with lots of people and uh, socialize with those same people after work and live in those same communities as the people they work with mm-hmm. and so on. So society just looks fundamentally different to how it did 40, 50 years ago. So can you put the genie back in the bottle of this sort of uh, people are are sort of yearning for some kind of community and they're finding it around these sort of contentious issues like anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, But, you know, what, you know, what do you do against this? Is there, is is it a sort of, um, do do you end up with a kind of technocratic uh, but liberal uh, solution that's somewhat less democratic, or do you do you end up going sort of full throttle towards a kind of um, populist authoritarianism? So, I mean, it, it really kind of is in the hands of how um, parties and political elites look to manage these change in society. But I think, as Jill said to kick us off, that we're trying to manage with the same set of institutions, but now in a very very different social environment. And parties haven't known how to yeah. keep up. Parties have gone from representing homogenous groups of people to not knowing what yep. they represent. And, you know, I, as is my want to bring it back to Australia, what are the parties here? Who, who do they represent? Um, someone like Labor's trying to represent, you know, the working class, but also, uh, you know, very well-educated left-wing progressives. Someone like the Liberal Party is trying to speak to, you know, your tradie with perhaps, you know, concerns about um, immigration and what that uh, means for his or her uh, job security, but also, you know, sort of wealthy capitalists. These aren't homogenous groups. They're very disparate and they don't cling together um, easily. We're seeing this with internal conflict within both parties. 
they're, they're not natural groups anymore. Paul's right. Um, society's becoming much more heterogeneous. We're, we're different. Our, our groups are getting smaller. Our social identity is, is dynamic. We're changing, you know, sort of year by year and, and parties haven't been able to keep up. Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for. But I want to say a big thank you to all three of you for coming in and talking to, to us about this topic. Thank you, Jill Shepard, Doug McDonald and Paul Kenny. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was Jill Shepard, Duncan McDonnell, and Paul Kenny there. And a big thank you again to all three of them for their time. What did you, our listeners, think of that discussion? Let us know your thoughts, and we'll highlight some of your questions and comments on future episodes of the pod. As we are about to do right now, in fact, we've got some great responses which have come in across our various channels over the last week. The first one I want to talk about is an article that we published last Friday. It's called For Future's Sake, and it's by Australia's former chief scientist, Ian Chubb. In it, Ian argued that Australian politics is in desperate need of a reboot, probably as you might have gathered from listening to that podcast. And he said that the only way Australia's self-serving political class is going to move beyond quick fixes is if voters are bothered enough to make them. Clive on Policy Forum left quite a long response, which is quite worth reading. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes, and I won't read it out all here, but I will highlight one bit. Clive said, The public service was supposed to offer advice to ministers and to make the case for evidence-based policy in our national interest. That the public service has been progressively dismantled as an independent institution and put to work for the minister is the main event. This has been part of the push for economic rationalism that aligned science with a market economy. What do you think about this, Sarah? Has the public service been politicised in Australia to the extent that it's no longer really independent? Well, Nikki, I think Clive raises some really interesting points here, but I also think it's a stretch to say that our public service is no longer independent, so I have to disagree there. What I do think it shadows, though, are questions about the changing nature of the public service. We've got big questions now about the use of consultants and outsourcing, and so I'd be less concerned about that internal politicization. I think our public servants have a broad responsibility and a capacity to maintain independence and indeed a duty to do so. And many of the public servants I work with are very committed to that. What I'm more concerned about is the outsourcing and buyout of public service to external consultants. So even if you've got some very diligent public servants independent uh, individually, do you think it's not the case that the different departments as a whole are gearing are geared towards doing what the minister wants rather than perhaps what's in the most in, most in the national interest. Departments will necessarily always respond to their ministers, but that's not to say that they are no longer independent. The job of the department is to provide thorough independent advice, and I think in Australia our departments are doing that work. Okay, well we've got another article I want to highlight here. This one was by Quentin Grafton. It was called Lies, Damn Lies, and the Global Financial Crisis. And some of you may be aware that this month is marks the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of the Lemon Brothers. Um, already 10 years has passed, which is quite hard to believe. In that article, Quentin argued that the world has no chance of learning the lessons of the GFC if we allow those who let it happen to construct alternative histories. And here he's talking about some of the main econ- economists in the United States who have since been casting themselves in slightly different light and trying to make the case that they were, in fact, um, ahead of the curve when the GFC hit, but who knows if that's actually the case. We've got a comment here from Ian who said, wonderful article, Quentin. Bravo. It frustrates me that the CEOs of our financial sectors are not accountable for their mismanagement, while, as you state, real lives are being affected. If I recall correctly, 
the future of financial advice rules had stated something to the effect that financial advisors had to work in the best interest of the client, as if that wasn't obvious, that it needed to be said is telling in itself. Thanks for that comment, Ian. What do you think about this one, Sarah? Do you think we need some more punitive responses when it comes to mismanagement in the financial sector, especially for act, uh, especially for actions that can affect the lives of millions of people? Again, I think this is a terrific comment from Ian, and it really raises a lot of food for thought. My question, though, goes to whether deterrence are really the answer. So I come from a home state where we still have the death penalty, and the argument is that this will be a deterrent. But historically, we've seen either a level of crime that remains about the same or indeed in recent years has risen. And so this notion of punitive measures being effective is one that I have a really difficult time buying into. So my question is, how do we influence and encourage ethical behavior? What is it about our current system that fuels or at least tolerates corruption and bad behavior? This is what I think we need to get at. And if we could answer those things, I think then we wouldn't really need punishment. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you there. And I definitely think that um, the evidence about the death penalty acting as a deterrent seems to show that it doesn't actually do that much. But I think that you can make a different argument about not the severity of the deterrent, but the certainty of it. That when you have a certainty that if I break the rules, I'm going to get some kind of punishment, um, that will change people's behavior, even if it's not the most severe level of punishment. So I'd be interested in seeing if there were ways that we could, I guess, put our financial sector in more accountability and making sure that when the rules are breached and people are acting in their own interest rather than the interest of the client, that there is more likelihood that they will be found out and, um, and punished for that. I think in an ideal situation, Nikki, that would be terrific. What we see, though, is an increasingly complex financial market and increasingly complex financial instruments that go along with that market. And so what we've seen in the cases that have arisen in Australia recently is, firstly, it's been very difficult for consumers, everyday consumers within that market, to recognize when they're being rorted. And also, it's extremely difficult for the regulators to pin down who is responsible. So where does the buck stop? Within a period of very complex financial markets and regulation, I think we genuinely do have to look to the systemic factors that might encourage more ethical behavior. Okay, and the final article I want to look at here is one that we published just yesterday. It's by Michelle Miller. It's called Cooler Heads, Calmer Waters. It was about Exercise Kakadu, Australia's largest defense exercise, which happened um, just recently up in the Northern Territory. And in the piece, Michelle Miller argued that the real value of that exercise was in the real world relationships that were built between Australia and other countries in the Indo-Pacific, relationships that might prevent the next maritime crisis. Uh, we've got a comment from Ian, another Ian on Twitter. Ian says, talk between people at operational levels ain't cheap. It can save lives. Be good to see a lot more of it and a lot more Pacific Islanders taking part in it. Sarah, any thoughts on this one? Do you think these sort of military exercises are a good use of taxpayer dollars if it means that they might lower the risk of conflict between nations? Well, Nikki, I do think it's all about relationships. I've never been in the military and I hope I never am, but I can remember back to when I was a Girl Scout and we used to go on campouts with the troop from the neighboring county. And I tell you what, eating crickets with somebody makes you pretty close. So there is something here about goodwill, about building trust. And as my dad would say, I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. You get to know people when you're out on these exercises. I think it's important. And I think the soft diplomacy that can occur through these exercises is a critical factor. 
Yeah, I definitely think that there's value to having these exercises and, you know, we might uh, turn our noses up at how much these exercises cost, but I think much like investing in diplomacy, you can't, um, it's not so easy to put a price tag on the long-term effects that come from building relationships with other militaries, building relationships between governments. So a big thank you to everyone who commented and a reminder to keep sending those comments in. Um, That also includes suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We are now closing in on the end of the year, but we still have a few slots left for topics that you, our listeners, could inspire us to take a look at. Send your ideas our way. Again, you can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or by email podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, perhaps you might want to do us a favor and just leave us a quick review on iTunes. only takes about 30 seconds of your time, and all you need to do is just find that fifth star. It'll be a really big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod, but until then, from me, Nikki Lovegrove, bye for now. And from me, Sarah Weiss, listen up, write in, and be well. Be well.